So the mm. question for Michael is, uh, in Who Am I, paragraph 19, Bhagavan says, all that one gives to others, one is giving only to oneself. With this, do we understand that be it good or bad, that one gives to others, one is only giving to oneself? For example, if we hurt uh, someone, it is going to come back to us in its fullness as the fruit of our actions sometime or the other. So wherever we are in our current life today, it is because that is what we deserve based on what one has done in the past. There is no benefit in blaming God for the difficulties one may be facing today, because that is what one has sown in the past and is reaping the fruit of that today. Again, even this fruit is selected in such a way by Bhagwan's grace that it helps us become more inward turned. Uh, uh, that it helps us become more inwardly turned and moves us faster towards Bhagwan. Could you kindly elaborate on this, please? Uh, yes, um, actually, um, in uh, in the nineteenth paragraph, what Bhagwan says is in, what he says in the last two two sentences. Uh, Piraku orova kodupadellam tanake kodutu kolkiran. Whatever uh, one gives to others, um, uh, all, all that one gives to others, one is giving only to oneself. Ivunmeye arindal evantan kodadu oriban. Uh, if one knew this truth, who indeed would remain without giving? Because of the second sentence, um, we have to infer what Bhagavan was directly referring to when he says all that one gives to others, he means giving good, I mean, uh, giving uh, positive good things. But the, the same is, though it's not exactly what Bhagavan is saying here, the same is equally true, but if we, whatever harm we do to others, we are doing to ourselves. Um, that is the, that is how the, the law of karma uh, works. As, as you sow, so you shall reap. Um, and because, actually, because when we rise as ego, it seems to us that there are others. And because we take ourselves to be one among the many people there, we are more concerned about this person than we are about others. So often out of our concern for the for the well-being or the benefit of this individual I take myself to be, I do actions that may do harm to others. So, but actually, we alone know what actually exists. That is those who appear to be others are actually just a reflection of ourselves. So by doing harm to them, we are doing harm to ourselves. Um, so yes, any good or bad that we do to others, uh, we are do doing to ourselves. Um, and yes, what what you say about um, uh, what we have to infer from this? So whatever, whatever suffering or difficulties we may face now. We are the authors of our own uh, of our own troubles. That is, the actions we've done in the past, not caring about others, have resulted in these actions that, in what we are now suffering. Um, but so yeah, you're right. We shouldn't blame God for these things. It, we are the author of our own troubles. But God does have a role to play because God selects for fruit but we are to experience in each life. That is, there's so many fruit of past karmas 
but we haven't yet experienced. They are all stored in what is called Sanchetta. And from Sanchetta, God selects which fruit are to be experienced in which life. And uh, in the, that is, what is the fruit appropriate for each action and when it is to be experienced. God selects the fruits um, in such a way that would be most conducive to our spiritual development. So yes, whatever whatever difficulties we undergo now, it is God's will in the sense that though it is the fruit of our karmas, our past karmas, it's He has selected for our spiritual benefit. So Bhagavan often said, whether you call it prarabdha or the will of God, it's the same thing. It amounts to the same thing. So whatever whatever we experience is our prarabdha, and our prarabdha is the will of God, what he has allotted for us to experience for our own spiritual benefit. So if we are wise, we will accept whatever whatever pleasures or pains or difficulties we may undergo, we will accept them all as his sweet will. So we should be equally grateful to him for the troubles he gives us as for the uh, pleasant things he gives us. Um, I hope that, uh, I mean, I, I, all, all, all of that was implied in the question, but I'm just uh, uh, reiterating the same thing, possibly in slightly different words, but I hope that adequately answers that. And the next question is, uh, could you please explain Maya and Shakti? When do we speak of Maya and when do we speak of Shakti? Thank you. There is only one reality and therefore only one power. However, that power can be can be used in that is the nature of that power is the power of love, otherwise called grace, but draws us back towards itself. But that power exists within us. That, that is we, that power is not anything other than ourself. It is ourself is that power. We are now, when we rise as ego, we are misusing that power. So the, the same power that is in our heart working in the form of grace, we are misusing that power to look outwards. Then the same power that is functioning in our heart as grace is manifest outwardly as Maya. But even this Maya is under the control of grace. So whatever we experience is all Maya, but it is it is it is under the control of grace. That is, it is grace that has allotted uh, whatever we're experiencing is the fruit of our past karmas, grace that has been allotted to us by grace. So ultimately, grace is the only power. But when we misuse that power, instead of yielding ourselves to the power of grace that is turning within, if we stubbornly insist on going outwards, as we all do, that is the nature of ego to do that, that is misusing our, our, uh, uh, that power. So uh, Bhagavan often said, Maya is nothing but mind itself or ego itself. Uh, generally, he said mind, but he meant mind in the sense of ego. So we ourselves are Maya, we ourselves are grace. So what do we want to use our power for? If we use our power to know other things, that is the power of Maya. If we use the same power to know ourselves, that is the power of grace. So it, it, the choice is ours because it, it's our own power. But so long as we misuse that power to go outwards, we are caught up in the... In the, um, in the <coughs> 
in the web of our own self-ignorance. So we, we, are, we bind ourselves. We are ever free. But what, so whatever bondage we seem to have is self-created bondage. We bind ourselves by looking outwards. We cannot look outwards without identifying a body as I. Taking a body as I is limiting ourselves to this finite form. And that is bondage. So uh, Maya and Grace are not two different uh, powers. They're one, they're one and the same power. Maya is the misuse of that power. Grace is the correct use of that power. So that power in its original nature is grace. It's when, only when we misuse it that it's called Maya. So the choice is ours. Are we going to continue misusing it to know other things? Or are we going to yield ourselves to it and allow it to draw us back within? That is why uh, uh, Bhagavan's path is a path of complete surrender. That means a path of yielding ourselves to grace. Instead of misusing grace, we are to yield ourselves and let grace use us, let grace take control of us. This is the significance of one word that I've discussed several times that Bhagavan often uses in Akshram. In the last um, the verse we talked about last time, verse uh, um, verse 14, polenikun arole tandani aluva dunganan. He says, uh, taking charge of me is your duty. So that aluva do, that is when we, when we yield ourselves to him, he takes charge of us. Uh, <clears throat> he's always willing to take charge of us, but he's never going to force himself on us. So we have to yield, we have to be willing to yield ourselves to grace. Then grace will do its work. So long as we want to continue misusing grace, grace gives us a free hand to continue and we suffer accordingly until we, by his grace, we get the wisdom to stop misusing grace in the form of Maya and, and to yield ourselves to it by turning back within. But the power, whether you call it grace or Maya, the power is one because that power, as Bhagavan says, um, uh, in Aranacha Ashtakam, Undoru Porul Arivoli Ulameini, there is one, um, <clears throat> there is one uh, real substance, you the, uh, you, the heart, the light of awareness. Uh, uh, un, unil, um, let's say, uh, this is verse six of Aranacha Ashtakam. Undoru poro, there is one real substance, arivoli, uh, the light of awareness, ullam, yeah, the heart, uh, you, that, that Aranach himself is the heart, the light of awareness, which is the one real substance, and that alone is what actually exists. Ulladu unnil, uh, alladila adiseya shakti, that is, there's, there is one a wonderful power in you, but is not other than you. That wonderful power is the power of grace, but we misuse that power in the form of Maya. So the power, the the the, the shaktan, the one who has the power, is one, and the power is one. That is, Shiva is the shaktan. He's the one who has the power. That is our nature. That is the, our own real nature. Um, but the Shakti, we misuse that Shakti to uh, create this, all this uh, trouble for ourselves, this whole universe, which is just trouble for ourselves.
so I hope that um, that adequately answers that question. The next question is, is uh, I am, this is in quotation marks, mm. is I am equal to I dash I, uh, which is equal to Atma, which is equal to the self? Um, firstly, what, what does I am mean? I am means I exist. Let's first consider I. What is What does the word I refer to? Now, because we mistake ourselves to be the, to be this body, we, we refer to this body and mind as I. But what I actually refers to is only to awareness. That is, I is the natural name of awareness, because what is aware or is always aware of itself. And the first person pronoun, in whatever the language may be, that is the natural name of awareness. So awareness always knows itself as I. So I refers to awareness, chit. I am means I exist. The existence is the sat. Of course, the sat and the chit are not two different things. They're one and the same thing. So the, the, the words I am refer to our being, to our existence. Um, so Bhagavan often used, the, the, that is, he often used the term I am to refer to our existence, and he distinguished it from I am this body. I am this body is our identity, is, is not our existence, but our identity. We identify ourselves as I am this body. When we say I am alone, am refers to existence. When we say I am this body, or I am Michael, I am whoever, the am is there serving as a, what is called a copula. That is it, the verb that links the subject with the subject complement. So I equals Michael is called I am Michael. Um, so am is there having a different function. Though it's the same verb, its function is we're using am there. It means it, when we say I, I am this body, that means I take myself to be this body. Whereas when we say I am alone, it's referring to our existence. So whenever Bhagavan uses the term I am, he's referring to our being. This uh, term I hyphen I, this is a term that you will find in English translations of Bhagavan's teachings, but it's actually a mistranslation. That is the term Bhagavan used in Tamil or Sanskrit is in Tamil, he used the term nan nan in Sanskrit, aham aham. If you take the bare meaning of those words, it means I, I, but that is missing the point. In Tamil and Sanskrit, as in many other languages in the world, if you want to say A is B, you don't have to say is, you just say A, B. There is, it's understood there. If you've got a sentence with a, a subject and a subject complement without any verb, the verb is clearly is. So, for example, in Tamil, if you want to say, um, I am this body is nani vudal. Ivudal means body, so it means I, this body. If you want to say who am I, it is nan ya. That's I who. There's no is there. It, that is, the, is is not explicit there, it's implicit, it's understood. Likewise, when Bhagavan says I, I, he, what he means is I am I. Uh, exactly the same in Sanskrit. If, if, um, Take a Sanskrit term such as um, shivoham. Shivoham is a, just two words. Shivaha and aham become shivoham. 
but we don't translate that as Shiva I. We translate it as Shiva is I. Like, likewise with Soham. Soham is Saha, he, Aham, I. That means he is I. Likewise, Aham, Aham means I am I. So that is a mistranslation. And that, that Bhagavan often used this term, Nan, Nan, or Aham, Aham. And it has a very, very deep meaning because I am, as Bhagavan often said, I am this or I am that is ego. I am I is our real nature. That's our real identity. What actually are we? We cannot be anything other than ourselves. So who am I? I am I, nothing other than I. So I am I is referring to our, that's our true identity. And our true identity is nothing but I. So um, the relationship between I am and I am I is but um, I am is our existence. What are we? We are nothing but I am. So I am, I am. That, that's the meaning of aham, aham. That's why Bhagavan often referred to the biblical saying, God, the, the name that God revealed to Moses when God appeared in the form of a burning bush in, uh, in uh, Genesis or Exodus, Exodus, I think, um, in the Bible, when uh, 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 this, uh, Moses saw a burning bush. So he approached the burning bush and a voice came out of a burning bush saying, this is holy ground remove your shoes. So he removed his shoes and went closer. And then a voice from a burning bush said, go to, um, go to return to Egypt and, um, and tell the Pharaoh that, uh, to release my people um, and tell the people to follow you because I have sent you. Then Moses asked, who shall I say has sent me? And God's reply was, I am that I am. Say that I am has sent you. So God is referring to his name there as I am. Um, the, the, the words in the original Hebrew is, is actually, they, it's not I am, it's just am. But I is understood in many languages, even in Tamil. If you say irikarein, irikarein means I am, but it's understood, the I is understood there. So in many languages, uh, because verbs are inflected, you don't always have to say the pronoun because the pronoun is implied in the inflected form of a verb. So what actually is um, the, the meaning of the original Hebrew is something to affect is am what am. The what, the, the, the word that means what, uh, that translates as that or what, uh, is a uh, is a relative pronoun or a relativizer, as it's sometimes called. So I think the correct meaning of that is what God is saying there is, I am is what I am. That is, what am I? I am is what I am. That's the implication there. That is, the is is understood. I am is what I am. That's the sense in which Bhagavan took it. So Bhagavan took I am that I am to be the same as I, I. Oh, that did aham aham. I am I. I am I. So that's the sense in which Bhagavan took it. That's why Bhagavan said, of all that, that Bhagavan often used to say, the first and foremost name of God is, is, is I am. Even in the Bible, it is said so. But he often used to refer to this particular statement, and he sometimes said, the greatest of all the Mahavakyas. Is not the Mahavakyas in the four uh, Vedas, but the Mahavakya in the Bible. Because 
when you say the other Mahavakyas, the Mahavakyas in the Vedas, are very, very important because they're pointing out what is our real identity. Our real Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Tattvamasi, you are that. Um, uh, I am Atma Brahman. This self is Brahman. Pragnanam Brahman. Uh, awareness, implying this very awareness that I am, is Brahman. So the Mahavakyas in the Vedas are, are revealing our our, our, our revealing our real identity, but a better expression of our real identity, rather than saying, I am Brahman, or I am this, or I am that, to say, I am I. Because if we talk about, so long as we don't know ourselves as we actually are, we don't know Brahman. So Brahman is just an idea for us. So if I say, I am Brahman, I'm identifying myself with a certain idea. When did I come to know about Brahman? Before I, I ever heard the word Brahman, I had no idea about Brahman. Then I learned about a word called Brahman, and I got a certain idea. What is Brahman? A big Satchitananda, the whole thing, the Paripurnabastu, there's so many things we can say. But it's still only an idea, because we don't actually experience that as ourself. So it is, it's necessary. Why the Vedas say you are that? Because... We, our mind is going outwards, looking for God or for happiness or for knowledge outside ourselves. So the Upanishads should say, you are that. They're turning our attention back towards ourselves. But, <clears throat> so they do so for a good purpose, but a better expression of what we actually are, rather than saying that we are Brahman, but true, uh, the ultimate truth is, I am nothing other than I. But how can we be anything other than ourselves? When it is said, I am Brahman, what does it mean? Brahman is nothing other than I. So, I am Brahman means I am I. So, out the, the most perfect expression of our identity is I am I. Um, so, it, this, this term I am I has an extremely deep um, uh, significance in Bhagavan's teachings. And the place where he uses it most often, when he's, when he's talking about investigating ourselves, He says, when the I dies, he says this in verse 20 of Upadeshundia, verse, um, verse 2 of Anna and verse 30 of Uludhu he says, when I dies, one thing uh, shines forth as I am I. That is the Purnavastu, the Paramapurna Satas, he says in Upadeshasaram, the, the infinite whole reality. So that is what we actually are. Then in the very next verse in Upadeshundia, he says, um, um, That, referring to that which shines forth as I am I, that is always the true import of the word I because of the absence of our non-existence in sleep, which is devoid of I. Devoid of I means it's devoid of ego. There's no ego in sleep, but though ego ceases to exist in sleep, we don't cease to exist. We, rem we, we remain as we always are. We, our existence is ever undisturbed by the changing of these states. So what I always refers to, now we wrongly use I to refer to this body, to this uh, body and mind, these five sheaths. But what I actually refers to is only that one reality but shines forth as I am I, when ego, whose nature is I am this or that, I am ego, I, I am this body, when that dies, 
what then the, the clarity of awareness that then shines forth as I am nothing but I, that is what we actually are. So this term I am I has a very uh, deep significance. And in that, that very famous verse in Sanskrit, Hridya Guhra Madhye Kevalam Brahma Matram Ahamaham Iti Atma Sakshat. Sorry, I can't remember. Hridi. Havalam Brahma, yeah, I can't remember exact words, but, but the meaning of that is that what is always shining as I am I in the cave of the heart, that is Brahman. So Bhagavan emphasizes this on every opportunity, but what we actually are is nothing other than ourselves, nothing other than I. So that has a very deep significance. So I, I am refers to our existence. I am I is our true identity, which is nothing other than our existence. I am I means I am, I am, what am I? I'm nothing other than myself. I'm, uh, I am my existence obviously cannot be two different things. So um, <clears throat> Bhagavan used those terms in different contexts. He used the term I am to, when, he's emphasis, when he's pointing specifically to our being as opposed to ego, which is I am this body. He uses I am I to emphasize what our real identity is. And there was one other thing in the question I've forgotten. I've talked about uh, I am and I am I. There was, I think there was something more in the question, Shalini. What was it? It was Atma. So I am equals I, I <laughs> equals Atma equals self. Yes. When we say self, what do we mean by self? Self is... Uh, Self is not a separate thing. Self is what we, is, that is, you and yourself, I am myself, um, this microphone and itself, everything is itself. So self is not a separate thing. When we, the, the word self just refers to ourself, not to anything other than ourself. So I and us, I and myself are one. So I and self are one. We can't separate them. Um, so obviously, yes, I am, I am myself for one. Um, the term Atman in Sanskrit means oneself. In some contexts, it's referring to our, in many contexts, it refers to our real nature. But in some contexts, it refers to ourself as ego. For example, in the term Atma Samapanam, self-surrender, Obviously, Atma there is not referring to what we actually are. It's referring to ego. So the, the term Atma simply means oneself. It tends to be, people tend to translate it with a, a the self, with a capital S. But that's actually confusing things. There are no two selves. Not, we, we don't have a little self and a big self. Now, me, this little self, I'm looking for that big self. No, that's thinking in terms, that's, Thinking in terms of duality, there's no such duality there. That is, we ourself, Atman is a term that refers to ourself. Ourself means it can in some context, generally, it is referring to ourself as we actually are. But in some context, it refers to ourself as ego. So we need to understand from a context the sense in which Atman is used. So Atman simply means oneself. Oneself means myself, I. It's the, so, so they all refer to the same thing. Is that an adequately clear answer to your question? Yes, thank you, Michael. Right. So in any English book, if you read the term I hyphen I, 
you should remember but what Bhagavan actually means is I am I. Then when once we understand that, all those places where we read I I become so much more meaningful. Because otherwise, what does I hyphen I mean? It has no clear meaning. Well, Bhagavan used the term repeatedly, but has no meaning. People say, oh, it means the vibrating of I or the pulsating of I. Whatever vibrates or pulsates is an object. It can't be the subject. I cannot be something that pulsates or vibrates. I is that which is eternal and immutable, unch ever unchanging. So um, uh, <clears throat> um, when Bhagavan talks about, when whenever you read those terms, I, I, it means I am I. Bhagavan is very clearly, he's using those terms for a very clear purpose, but what we actually are is nothing other than ourselves. So I am I refers to our real identity. Our real identity is our being. I am refers to our being. And the term um, our, our self or, or Atman can, depending on the context in which we use it, it can either refer to ourself as ego or ourself as we really are. But they're not, that doesn't mean there are two selves. It's only one self. The, the, the one, what we actually are is only I am. I am I. So it's just, we, we are nothing other than our being. But we, when we mix and conflate ourselves with adjuncts, as I am this or I am that, so long as we take ourselves to be anything other than what we actually are, um, that is a false identity. That false identity is ego the so-called little self. But it's not, it's not a different self. It is the same self, the same I am, mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So Bhagavan often used to say, Atmanyana is not a new knowledge to be obtained. We already know ourselves. We are all clearly aware I am. The problem is, what is called uh, avidya or ajnana is nothing but a wrong knowledge. That is the false awareness. I am this body. I am such and such person. That is ajnana. That is avidya. So all we need to do is to remove the avidya and what remains is vidya, the pure awareness I am. So Bhagavan said, if jnana were a new knowledge to be attained, whatever it is attained will also be lost. Whatever comes has to go. So jnana has to be eternal. Jnana is our own real nature. It's what we actually are. And as he says in verse 13 of Uludunapdu, jnana mam tane mei, oneself who is jnana alone is real. Alone is real means that alone is what actually exists. Everything else is just a, an appearance. It doesn't actually exist, even though it seems to exist. So is that a sufficiently clear answer? Yes. Right. Thank you. The next question is, uh, there are two questions. Uh, so the first question is, uh, what is the difference between God and Guru? I remember you said once that Arunachala or Bhagavan are primarily Guru. Could you please elaborate? And the second question is in shall, GVK, shall, shall I deal with one question at a yes, time? Yes. Because otherwise I tend to forget. I've got a poor memory. Um uh, in the uh, in the beginning of the um of the twelfth paragraph of Nana, 
um, uh, Bhagavan says, um, Kadavalam Guruvam Unmail Verala. That means God and Guru are in truth not different. If ever I talked about the difference between God and Guru, uh, that is, it's a different role. The same person can have different roles. Um, someone may be, in, in his professional life, he may be a doctor or a lawyer, but when he's at home, he's a husband or a father or a son or something. So, we have, so God and Guru are one and the same thing. However, the role of God and the role of Guru, there are certain differences. That is, God has the responsibility, supposedly, of creation, sustenance, destruction, Shristi, uh, Siti, uh, Samhara. The function of ego is to remove the, the, the ignorance in which creation, sustenance, and destruction seems to occur. So, uh, God and Guru have different functions. That is, so long as we are worshipping, people worship God, wanting this and that. They pray to God for health, wealth, and everything, for going to heaven after the end of a life, all these things. So long as we are taking God as a means to an end, we, we are... Give, we are giving him, we are attributing to him certain function. A guru, the function of guru is to remove the ignorance. So, the, the, though God and guru are one and the same, there, there's no absolutely no difference whatsoever between God and guru. They're different functions of the same thing. I, I hope that is a clear answer to that question. So, Bhagavan, for example, if we are following Bhagavan's path, we are taking Bhagavan to be Guru. But if we are worshipping Bhagavan for um, removing all our problems and um, giving us a good life and uh, take, protecting us and everything, that is, we are taking him as God. So, it's up to us whether we take him as God or as Guru. When we take him as Guru, God is implied because um, because Guru cannot be anything. I mean, God cannot be anything other than Guru. Guru is the highest function of all. So when we take him as Guru, then he's God also. But if we take him just as God, just as a, a means to some end, if we pray to him for this or for that and, uh, and uh, ignore his teachings, then we are just taking him to be God. If we take him, if we aspire to follow his teaching, then we are taking him to be guru, then he is both guru and God. So we can take him to be just God, or we can take him to be guru and God. We can't take him to be just guru, because guru is always God. And what was the second question, Shalini? Uh, the second question is, in GVK, it is said about the story of Kanapa, the hunter. Um, so the story goes like this. Um, um, so the story is, uh, Kanapa was proud of his eyes, which were very beautiful. So according to the divine saying, I will forcibly deprive my true devotee of all his possessions so that his mind may always cling to me. Lord Shiva tested Kanapa by making him offer even his treasured and enviable eyes to the Lord. 
This information about Kanapa's attachment to his eyes was only revealed to Bhagwan, was only revealed by Bhagwan and not mentioned in the Puranas. Kanapa was a mature devotee, so he could straightway pluck out and offer his eyes. But how should an immature devotee behave when Bhagwan forcibly takes away from us something we foolishly cherish? For example, our relationships or wealth or health or appearance, etc. How should we interpret this action of, of Bhagwan? And what should we pray for in such case? We should thank Bhagavan and ask him to take away everything else. Because there's a in Tirukural, there's a verse that Bhagavan often used to refer to. Yadlin, Yadlin, Ninina Nodal, Adlin, Adlin Nilan. That means from whatever, from whatever one uh one withdraws oneself or one gives up, one is free from a trouble of that thing. So if Bhagavan takes anything away from us, He's freeing us from the trouble of that thing. If he takes away this ego, he's freeing us from all troubles altogether. So we we should we should thank Bhagavan for whatever he takes away from him, and we should pray to him to take away take away the if we feel if we feel um suffering because something has been taken away from him, then we should pray to him, take away this one who is suffering. In other words, ego. So uh, uh, he blesses us by taking away from us, not by giving us. Because the one thing he can never take away from us is our own being. So if he takes everything else, what remains is our being. That is the fullness of perfect happiness. That is, he himself is our being. So uh, the, the more he takes away from us, the better it is. For us, and we we lament in this life uh, if we lose something, if we lose our health, or if we lose our wealth, or this or that. We lament about it, but we all know very well one day death is going to come. We're going to lose everything: this body, this mind, this whole identity that we have now. We're going to lose it all. So why should we be weeping about the loss of our health, or the loss of our wealth, or this or that? It all has to go. Let it all go. The more that goes, the better for us. We yes, true. We are immature devotees, so we are we are still reluctant to let go. But when he removes things, we begin to even whatever he may remove. What will we find? Oh, I've lost my wealth. I've lost my health, but I'm still here. So the one thing that. Can never we can never lose is our own being, and our own being is itself infinite happiness. So when everything else is removed, our own being will reveal itself to us as the infinite happiness that it always is. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. Well, the next question is: uh, If the world is just, if the world is just a dream. And there is no world independent of our perception of it. What's the difference between this idea and the philosophy of solipsism? <clears throat> solipsism, as it's usually understood, is 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 usually understood in a very superficial way. Generally, solipsists think uh, only my mind exists. But Bhagavan's teachings are far far deeper. Bhagavan says, though though Bhagavan says. But there's one ego. Ego is one. 
That is what is called Ekajibabada. Bhagavan is not saying ego is real. He's just saying all this multiplicity appears, and all these multiple egos, multiple jivas, they appear in whose view? In the view of the one jiva that is seeing them all. That even that, if that one jiva investigates itself, it will find itself is unreal. That is, it is, it is not real as the jiva, but it seems to be. What is real is only our being, not our identity. Our identity is I am this or I am that. That is jiva. That is false. So Bhagavan goes beyond solipsism. That is, so long as we 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 rise as ego and see all this multiplicity, it's very helpful to understand that none of these things exist independent of our perception of them. But we're not just to stop there. If we just come to the conclusion, okay, I alone exist, so why should I care about others? Let me let me, um, let me me uh, cheat others and uh, do everything to get all that I want or satisfy all my desires, because only my desires matter, because I'm the only one. If we think like that, what is the result? That is just strengthening ego. That is not the intention of Bhagavan's teaching. The intention of Bhagavan's teaching, when he says, you are just, there's only one ego and you are that, what should be our, our then what am I? If I am a, if I'm what has created all of this, then what am I? I? I cannot know the truth of all this until I know the truth of myself. So if we understand the the implication of what Bhagavan taught us is far deeper than the implication of the superficial uh, solipsism that is usually um what philosophers are so afraid of. That is the the um, philosophers will do, do all they can to avoid coming to a solipsistic conclusion because for them it's terrifying solipsism. But Bhagavan asks, embrace solipsism, but go beyond solipsism. That you find out what is you are the one ego. Find out the truth of yourself, and you will find there's no ego at all. So Bhagavan's teachings are far, far deeper than. Um, solipsism as it is usually understood. So long as we are looking outwards, we take ourselves to be this person. And so there are many people. So so long as we look outwards, in effect, there are many, many jivas. That is, for all practical purposes, when, in, in, when, so long as we're looking outwards, we have to accept, yes, there are many jivas. But this, the teaching that there's only one jiva is to make us turn within to investigate who am I. When we investigate who am I, we find even this one jiva is not real. What is real is the fundamental, our own being, that fundamental awareness I am. That alone is real. The jiva is the false awareness. I am such and such a person. I am this body. That is what is unreal. So everything appears in the view of that one jiva who is aware of itself as I am this body, but if that one jiva, instead of attending to other things, turns its attention within to see who am I, even that one jiva will be eradicated, and what alone remains, that is the one reality, the one without a second. So it goes far, far Though it is, in a sense, a form of solipsism, but it goes far beyond solipsism. Solipsism, is, in, in a sense, Ekajiva Vada, is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. 
is a help to us on this path. I hope that adequately answers that question. The next question is, uh, did Bhagwan have a favorite scripture or story he would refer to and recommend outside his teachings? People brought books to Bhagavan. He often explained those books. Um, some books were brought to him uh, because they were came closer to his teachings. Those he, we can say he had, like, for example, David Kalotram. But that is, um, actually, it's not David Kalotram. It is a chapter from David Kalotram. David Kalotram, Jnana Chara Vichara Padalam. It's a, one chapter from that uh, David Kalotram. David Kalotram is an upper Agama. Agama is a, of a, uh, of a uh, core text of Shaiva Siddhanta. Most of them are dualistic in their import. But someone brought to Bhagavan this chapter from uh, David Kalotram, but he's clearly non-dualistic. So Bhagavan translated it into Tamil. Um, so, yes, we can say there's certain texts Bhagavan particularly liked because they because of their close affinity to his teachings. Um, but we can't say any text is Bhagavan's favorite. There are many texts that, I mean, uh, some texts he translated, for example, Bhagavad Gita. Um, someone said to him, Bhagavan, it's difficult to remember all the verses of the Gita. Can you select the, the, some central verses on the Gita? So that if we remember those, we know the heart of the Gita. So Bhagavan selected 30, 42 verses and he translated them into Tamil as Bhagavad Gita Saram. Those are the, the, the 42 verses that are the most apt, uh, most uh, um, have closest affinity to his own teachings. So yes, there are many things in in ancient texts that are but come very close to his teachings. For example, in that Bhagavad Gita Saram, two of the verses he translated, verses twenty, uh, I think twenty seven and twenty eight, their translation of uh, Bhagavad Gita chapter six, um, verse uh, twenty five and twenty six. In those two verses, Krishna describes the practice of self-investigation perfectly, just as Bhagavan would describe it. So, yes, there are many things in, in ancient texts that Bhagavan found had great affinity to his teaching. So he referred to those things and he pointed them out. So many, um, in Tirukkural, for example, there are certain verses I mean, a lot of Tirukkural Bhagavan didn't, uh, I mean, Bhagavan would have known all of Tirukkural, but there's certain particular verses, like I referred to one, Yadlin, Yadlin, Ningina, Nodal, Adlin, Adlin, Elan. From whatever you withdraw yourself, from, you're free from the trouble of that thing. And there's another one, in Patratran, I, I can't remember the exact uh, verse, but it means uh, in order to be free of attachment, cling to heat. Uh, cling to the, cling to that, be attached to that which is free of attachment. In order to be free of attachment, that which is free of attachment means God. So if we cling with attachment to God, we will thereby be free of attachment. So such verses, Bhagavan pointed out. So there are so many um, verses here and there in so many texts that Bhagavan referred to, but. And, and people like to say Bhagavan recommended uh, Ribu Gita and Ashtavakra Gita and all these things. These are all very nice texts. Um, they all give the basic philosophy of Advaita very nicely. But 
um, if we compare all these texts with, for example, Ulutu Napadu, then we cannot find any ancient text but compared to Uludu Napadu in its simplicity, in its depth, and its uh, clarity. And in what is unique about Bhagavan's works, such as Uludu Napadu, Bhagavan clearly emphasizes the practice. If you read Ribu Gita or you read um, Ashtavakra Gita or so many of these other older texts, it's not, it, it's not made very clear what is the practice. That is, when it is said, for example, in Upanishads, you are that, we should understand, oh, if I am that, then what am I? We should understand that the, the point is that we have to investigate ourselves. But people miss the point. They go on and on reading these books without grasping, but all these books are pointing us, is back, they're pointing our attention back to ourselves. We need to know ourselves. Whereas in Uladu Naptu, for example, Bhagavan has has very, very clearly tied the, the that is he, he's expressed the philosophy of Advaita in an extremely deep and uh, far clearer fashion than it's been stated anywhere else. And he's emphasizing the practice. He's constantly verse after verse after verse. He's talking about turning within, investigating um uh, if sought, it takes flight. If we, if we seek, if we investigate this ego, it will cease to exist. So he's he's emphasizing the practice so much. So I I don't think there's any scripture in all the world that can equal to Uludunapadu in its depth and its profundity. And compare any stotra to the depth and profundity of of Aksharamalai. In Aksharamalai. That is the very cream of Bhagavan's uh, teachings because he's uh, all his teachings are implicit in Aksharamalai. It's, it's all a prayer for the eradication of ego. That is, Uludunapadu, the conclusion Bhagavan comes to be at the end, the last verse of Uludunapadu, Bhagavan says, ask, what is Mukti? That is, he says, if it is said that Mukti is of three kinds, with form, without form, or with or without form, I will say, the destruction of the ego form but distinguishes these three types of mukti, that alone is mukti. So Bhagavan emphasizes at the end of Uludunapti, the final verse, what is the aim of all this? It is destruction of ego. And he's talking about destruction of ego right from the beginning. In the second verse, he says, all these different disputes about uh, uh, whether there are three or whether there's one, all, all these can last only so long as ego exists. The state, um, uh, uh, the young uh, ketu, I dying, I being destroyed, abiding in one's own self, having destroyed ego, that is best. And then in the next verse also, he talks about nanatra and nilay, the state devoid of the I, devoid of ego. So throughout Uludunapdu, he's talking about ego and about the destruction of ego, but he concludes Uludunapdu saying, Destruction of ego alone is liberation. And he begins Aksharamlai. That is, what is Aranachal all about? What is Aksharamlai all about? It's about eradication of ego. So, um, Bhagavan, in the, the same teaching that he gives in Uludunapadu and Upadeshundi and U, um, Nana, he's giving in Aksharamlai in the form of a stotra. But Aksharamlai is particularly important because when we try to apply 
what Bhagavan has taught us in Uludu Napadu Anabha works. The difficulties we come across, what is the difficulty in applying Bhagavan's teaching is, as he makes clear in Nana, for example, it's our Vishaya Vasanas, our inclinations to go out towards Vishayas. So Akshram Lai is all about uh, how to deal with these Vishaya Vasanas. So um, Bhagavan's teachings are so deep. If we if we've relished the the depth and profundity and the heart melting nature of Bhagavan's works, all these other texts, though they're very nice, they seem somehow a little bit insipid. They're not. They. They. No other text can satisfy us once we've tasted the the rich affair of Bhagavan's teachings. No other te- text will. We'll find. Yes. Oh, it's very nice. It's very nice. Yes. It's certainly nice. But it's not. It won't satisfy us in the same way that Bhagavan's teachings satisfy us. I hope that is a a clear and useful answer to that question. Uh, the next question is, I'm conditioned to believe that Sukshma Shari, the subtle body, lives inside this gross body and reincarnates. And reincarnates. How do I ignore this firmly rooted idea and do self-inquiry with no pre- preconceived? Uh, right. Okay. Um, yes, it is generally said in, but in, in many texts, it is said, but when the gross body, the, the stula sarira passes away, it's the sushma sarira that goes on and takes rebirth. Um, however, what actually, um, what actually goes from life to life, the continuity is ego. It is ego who, who is, who, uh, continues from life to life, and what ego takes with it from one life to the next is its vasanas. Um, the vasanas of a karana sarira, the causal body. So, um, because it's said in scriptures that the, it's the subtle body that, co- that goes from life to life, Bhagavan has given a different, has interpreted the term subtle body in a different sense. In in verse um, 24 of Uludhanaptu, when he's describing what is ego, he says, but insentient body does not say I. That, that means the body, because it's insentient, because it's, it's jada, it's not aware, it is not aware of itself as I. When he says it does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying it's not aware of itself as I. Satchit, being awareness, doesn't rise. But in between these two, one thing called I rises as the extent of a body. Because it's I, it's not the body. Because the body is not aware of itself as I. So I is the nature of Satchit. But because it rises, it's not Satchit. So it's neither the body nor Satchit, but some spurious entity that rises between the two, partaking of the properties of both. Then he says, this is chit jada granti. This is the, the knot formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. Chit there refers to satchit, the real awareness, the pure awareness I am. Jada refers to the body. So when these two are mixed and conflated, that resulting knot is what is, is this ego. So he says, chit jada granti, bandham. Bandham means bondage. Jivan, jivan means the, the individual soul. Um, nupame, nupame means subtle body, uh, um, ahande, ego, 
Ichamsara, this samsara, mana mind. So all these names all refer to this one eye that rises between, but is neither the body nor such it, but rises between uh, uh, taking the properties of both, uh, that is usurping the properties of both. So there Bhagavan is pointing out that Ego is the subtle body. So he's, he, that doesn't mean ego is the, the pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and vijnanamaya kosha, which are usually taken to be the subtle body. Bhagavan, what Bhagavan is indicating here is that the, but when it is said that the subtle body goes from life to life, it's not talking about the pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and vijnanamaya kosha. It's talking about ego. And in, in, he also, in the same way, in uh, Nana, in, um, in, um, in the fifth, uh, fourth paragraph, end of the fourth paragraph, he says, Maname sukshma sariram indram, jivan indram, solapadukiridu. That is, the mind alone is what is said to be the subtle body and the jiva. Here, mind doesn't mean the manamaya kosha. Here, mind means ego, because he's talking about. Um, uh, he, he he's using the term mind here in the sense of ego. Um, so, what what goes from life to life is only ego. Ego takes along with it its vasanas. The vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all the other four sheaves. The uh, vijnana uh, maya kosha, mana maya kosha, prana maya kosha, and stula sarira. So, so in a sense. Uh, yes, or, or it, it takes all these things with it, but it takes them in seed form. So it and it when we say it, we're talking about I. We're talking about this ego, this false awareness of ourselves, but we, what we now take ourselves to be. So it is true the uh, sukshma sarira goes from body to body, from life to life, but it doesn't mean sukshma sarira in the sense of. Pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and vijnanamaya kosha. It means sutra sarira in the sense of ego or jiva. I hope that is a clear answer to that question. And it's not even going from one body to another because all these bodies and worlds are just a projection of ego. So it's not, though, though it's often translated in English as transmigration, as if we're migrating from one body to another body to another body. It's not, I mean, that's how it's usually understood. But it's according to Bhagavan, whatever body we experience as ourselves is just our own projection. So when we leave one body, we project another body. It's not that we we leave this body and travel through astral space to some other body. It's not like that. I hope that is a clear answer to that question. Uh, the next question, Michael, is: uh, Is Ananya Bhava the con the conviction that he is not other than I different from Ahamspuran? Does Ananya Bhava occur more on an intellectual level as mixed with face, faith, whereas Ahamspurana occurs more on an experiential level? Does Ananya Bhava lead to Ahamspurana? Um, Ananya Bhava means, um, well, the context in which Bhagavan uses that in verse 8, there he's using Bhava in the sense of uh, meditation. So it means meditation on what is not other than ourselves, with the conviction that he is I. Um, so the, the, 
Yes, first we need to have a clear understanding that God is nothing other than ourself. Once we understand that, once we understand that God is nothing other than ourself, but he is I, what should we meditate on? We shouldn't continue meditating on he, because he, he is just an idea. We should meditate. What he actually is, is not some idea, not something other than ourself. He is ourself. So we should meditate on nothing other than ourself. So Ananya Baba, in the sense in which Bhagavan refers to it, is Atmavichara. It's self-investigation, turning our attention inwards. And in the next verse, verse 9, he says that by the strength of that Ananya Baba, He's, well, he just said Baba Balatinal, but that implies the Baba referred to there is that Ananya Baba. In other words, by the strength of the self-attentiveness, being in one's own, uh, in, in one's state of being, which transcends Bhavana, transcends all mental activity, is Parabhakti Tattva. So, um, uh, the, uh, what Bhagavan means by Ananya Baba is not just some intellectual understanding. Of course, the intellectual understanding has to be there, but it's actually applying that intellectual understanding by turning our attention within. So Ananya Baba is just another name for Atmavichara. To the extent to which we turn our attention within, we experience a fresh clarity. We begin to, so long as we're looking outwards, we experience ourselves as I am this body. To the extent to which we look within, we began to uh, we begin to recognize that what we actually are is nothing other than, than I. That's why Bhagavan often referred to the uh, Aham Sparana as Aham Aham. Uh, uh, I am I. That is that what Aham Sparana means. It's that clarity of self-awareness, the clarity that what I actually am is nothing other than I. It's not the full clarity, but the, the clarity that we begin to, to gain the more we go deeper within, the clarity we gain to the extent to which we go within, that is what Bhagavan means by Ahamsparana. So by the Ananya Baba, by turning our attention within, we begin to experience our ourself, we experience our, what we actually are, we begin to experience more clearly as I am I. That is uh, that is what is called sparana. So yes, Ananya Baba leads to sparana, and when that sparana, sparana is not just a fixed thing. People say, "Have you experienced sparana?" Sparana is just a, a a a fresh clarity. So there are different degrees of that clarity. When that clarity becomes full, that the fullness of that clarity is what swallows ego. Um, so Bhagavan uses the term sparana both to refer to the, the partial clarity that we experience to the extent to which we go within and the full clarity in which we lose ourselves. So all that sparana means is the clarity of self-awareness. How is that clarity of self-awareness uh, 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 achieved? It's achieved to the extent to which we turn our attention within. Turning our attention within is what is called an Anya Baba. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. And in order to turn our attention within, we need to understand that he is I. So the, 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 the intellectual conviction is necessary. If we don't have the intellectual conviction, we won't even be able to turn our mind within because we won't understand what is meant by within. So we need to have a clear uh, conceptual understanding of Bhagavan's teachings in order to apply it in practice. But the real 
the real depth of clarity comes not from merely the, the understanding the concepts, it comes from within, by turning within. But we, in order to turn within, we need to understand the teachings properly. We, un, we can turn within to the extent to which we clearly understand the teachings. I, I hope that's a clear answer to that question. The next question is, I accept the definitions of reality because Bhagavan has said so. That is, reality is Satchitanand, one without a second, eternal, immutable, and self-shining. For someone who would not accept scripture of Bhagavan, why are these definitions true? Thank you. Um, in, uh, what, I was, what I was talking about in the previous uh, first half of the talk today I was talking about that. Why? Why did I mean the 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 implication was there? That is, I one of the questions I asked is, why should we say that Arunachal alone exists? Arunachal means when Bhagavan talks about Arunachal, he means our own real nature. So why should we ex, why should we accept that we alone are what actually exist? For the very simple reason, but what exists must always exist. If something exists at one time and not at another time, it isn't intrinsically existent because it's gaining existence when it comes into existence. It's losing existence when it comes when it ceases to exist. So it is not actually existent. It's 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 borrowing its existence from something else. Just like if you've got a a gold ring, for example, today it's a gold ring. Tomorrow the goldsmith may make melt it and make it into a bangle. So the the whether it's a ring or a bangle or a tiara or a, um, a necklace or whatever it is, it, the form borrows its existence from the substance. The substance is gold. The form is just a temporary appearance. Uh, likewise. Um, Anything that sometimes seems to exist and sometimes doesn't seem to exist is borrowing its existence from its underlying substance. So all things that seem to exist seem to exist only in the view of the mind. So all objects borrow their semi-existence from the semi-existence of the subject. The subject is ego or mind. Objects are all phenomena are objects. So all phenomena depend for their semi-existence upon the semi-existence of ourself as mind. But even this mind or ego is not is not real because it appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. Since it doesn't exist in sleep, it doesn't really exist even when it seems to exist. So what it borrows its existence from something else. From what does it borrow its existence? From the one thing that exists in all three states, namely ourself, the fundamental awareness I am. That is why Bhagavan said, what exists has to be permanent. If anything is not permanent, it doesn't actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So that's a very good reason for accepting the first definition Bhagavan gives, eternal. If some, the next definition he gave is unchanging, immutable. If something changes, it is one thing at one time and a different thing at another time. This body was once a small baby. 
now it's no longer a small baby. It's a it's a, um, a older person uh, get, getting getting closer to the grave. So it's got undergone so many changes. So can I say this body is the same as that body that was uh, um, that was there then as a baby? Every atom in this body would have changed. Yes, sir. If we uh, if we um, follow science, we can say yes. But the the basic DNA blueprint is the same. That's what gives it the identity. Okay, we can accept that from a from a material point of view. But what gives the seeming continuity is it the eye that is now aware of itself as I am this, and. Sixty years ago, was I am aware of myself as I am that little boy playing around. So uh, there is a continuity, but the ch because there's a change, it's not identical. The only thing that is identical, even the mind, has changed so much. What I desired as when I was a seven-year-old boy is different to what I desire now. What I what I knew then is different to what I know now. There's so many things I knew then I've forgotten. And so many things I knew now, I had not a clue about him when I was a seven-year-old boy. So all these things are changing. The body is changing. The mind is changing. But one thing that is unchanging is the fundamental awareness I am. That is the only continuity. So, um, so whatever changes is one thing at one time and another thing at another time. Therefore, it's not real. Um, uh, in other words, it, what is changing is impermanent. Um, and then the most important definition of all, self-shining. It must shine by its own light. Anything that is judder doesn't shine by its own light. This microphone is not shining by its own light. It's shining in the light of the mind. The mind that says, yes, there is a microphone. The microphone doesn't come along and say, I am here. No, it is the mind that says there's a microphone there. So it's all the objects of the world are shining by the light of the mind. All the objects of the mind, that is all the thoughts and feelings and emotions and uh, likes, dislikes and everything, they're also shining by the light of the mind. By the, that mind here means mind in the sense of ego, the subject, the knower. And, but even this knower, this uh, the, the ego, the subject, the, the perceiver of all other things, the knower of all other things, appears and disappears. It appears in waking and dream. It disappears in sleep. In sleep, I don't know anything because that the knower has gone. All that remains in sleep, the only thing I know in sleep is I am, because that is the fundamental thing. So the knower, that which knows things other than itself, ceases to exist in sleep, and so all other things cease to exist along with it. So all these things are impermanent. So other things derive their existence, see me existence from me who know it, and I derive my see me existence from a, from my own re, my own reality, my real nature, which is the pure awareness I am. Um, I've forgotten now what the question. Oh yes. So, so how why should we accept it if we think about Bhagavan didn't ask us to believe anything. He said, in fact, Bhagavan said, do not believe what you do not know. So but Bhagavan gave us good reason to accept what he has taught us. But 
even now we cannot say, but we fully, even though we may have understood what he taught us, we understand, yes, what Bhagavan says is reasonable, but we still don't know the truth of it until we investigate ourselves and know ourselves as we actually are. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we'll cease to be ego. And so it, what will know us as we actually are is only our, as, as Bhagavan makes clear, only our natural can know our natural, because our natural is pure awareness. Pure awareness cannot be known by anything other than itself. It cannot be an object of awareness. So we, as we actually are, alone will know ourselves as we actually are. But even now, as we actually are, we know ourselves as we actually are. It's only as ego that we seem to be ignorant of what we actually are. So Bhagavan's teachings, if we if we understand them correctly, we will understand we've got far stronger reasons to believe what Bhagavan tells us than any other type of philosophy. Because Bhagavan's philosophy is very simple and based upon our, our own experience. As he says, for example, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego uh, doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. When we first hear that, that may sound an outrageous idea. How can you say everything exists just because of me, because of ego? But if we think of it, that's actually our experience. In, in sleep, there's no ego and there's nothing else. In waking and dream, we rise as ego and all other things appear. So it's actually, he point, though it's, what he's pointing out is very deep, but it's actually, it's our experience. So we have very good reasons to believe Bhagavan. We shouldn't be just believing Bhagavan, oh, because Bhagavan says so, it must be true. That's missing the point. We need to understand why he says so, why it is the truth, and what we must do about it. That's the most important thing of all. If we understand Bhagavan correctly, but the implication of all his teachings is that we should turn our attention within to find out who am I. That's what his teachings are all about. It's not about just mere faith. Mere belief. Belief does come, but the, the, the Sanskrit word is more or less equivalent to the, to the word faith that is used in other religions is Shraddha. But Shraddha doesn't mean just faith in the sense of blind belief. Shraddha is that clar inner clarity that comes by turning our attention within. The more we turn our attention within, the more clear it will become to us that we are something distinct from this body and mind that we now seem to be. That clarity is what is called Sraddha. So if, if we apply Bhagavan's teachings, if we think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings, we will, we will convince ourselves, yes, this must be true. If we put it into practice, the conviction will become so much stronger because we'll be, be beginning to, to experience what he's talking about. We'll be, be, be beginning to experience that inner clarity that he's, all his teachings are pointing at. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. Uh, the next, uh, I think that's, okay, there is one small question, uh, and then we can finish, I think. I, I, I've also got one question that someone uh, during the break or before the break sent in uh, a private message to me. So let's deal with the question you have and then I'll deal with the other one. What is the difference between a guru and an avatar? Would Bhagwan be considered an avatar as I feel Bhagwan's teachings are the most universal I have ever come across? <clears throat> I think avatar means uh, what has come down. Um, the, the concept of avatar is... Um, it's 
it's more applicable. Yes, I mean, we can loosely say Bhagavan is an avatar, but it's not. Usually, it's more in the Vaishnava Sampradayas and in the, the more... Um, the more dualistic sampradayas that they talk about avatars. Um, Bhagavan hasn't come down anywhere. Bhagavan is our own real nature. He is manifested outside in order to tell us to turn within. So if you want to take him to be avatar, fine. There's no wrong in taking him to be avatar, but it's not really necessary to take him to be that. Because an avatar is a manifestation of God. Bhagavan is God himself. We don't have, he's not an avatar or an amsa. Amsa means an aspect or a, a part. He's not a part. He's the whole. So, um, yeah, I mean, but all, all these are just words in the... Uh, what is what is Bhagavan's real nature? He revealed in the verse Ariyati Tarajivara Dahavari Jaguhil Arivairami Paramatman Arunachala Ramanan. Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatma, the Supreme Spirit, the Supreme Self. Uh, uh, Rami exists blissfully or but revels uh, Arivai as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all different jivas, beginning with Harry. So from the highest god down to the lowest uh, insect, in the heart of all sentient beings, he is that which is shining as awareness. Which awareness? The awareness I am. <clears throat> so that's what he tells us. But Bhagavan never stops with just telling us. Uh, uh, he, How can we know that for ourselves? He reveals in the second half of that same verse. Parival ulum uruha. Heart melting with love. This is the key. A heart must be melting with love. A heart melting with love when one reaches the, the cave where the sub, that sublime supreme dwells. Aribam viri tirava, the eye of awareness opening. Nijamarivai, you will know the truth. You'll know the reality. You'll know your own real nature. Aduveliam, it will reveal itself. It will come out. So, um, Bhagavan is um, is beyond all avatars, beyond all uh, gods, or uh, all these things. He is the he is the ultimate reality itself. He is Guru. Guru is the highest of the highest. There's a verse in a verse, I think thirty nine, if I remember correctly, of Uludhunapdu Anabandam, Bhagavan translated from Sanskrit. In I. I I have a feeling it may be from a verse of Shankar, I can't remember. Yes, I think it's from a work called Tatvu Padesha, if I remember correctly, uh, which I think is attributed to Shankara. In that uh, verse, but what Bhagavan says is, always cherish Advaita in the heart, but never express it in action. Expressing it in action is meaningless because Advaita means not to. If there are not to... There cannot be any action. There's only being. So, so long as there's action, there's the appearance of duality. So we shouldn't try to express non-duality in action. Then Bhagavan says, uh, non-duality uh, can be um, how uh, that is. We you you can you can um, can be can be. Uh, Applied in all the three worlds, but it can, should not, it should never be applied to Guru. That is, the three worlds means the worlds of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. So you can go to Brahma Loka and say to Brahma, "You and I are one." 
because your your job is projecting the world. I'm the one who's projecting the world. I, this ego is projecting the world. So you and I are one. We can go to Vishnu and say you and I are one because your job is sustaining the world. By rising as ego, I'm sustaining the world. So we can claim non. We can claim uh, to be one with. Uh, um, with Brahma, we can claim to be one with uh, Vishnu. We can go to Shivaloka and say, you and I are one. Because if we turn within, we thereby destroy the whole world. That's a function of Shiva. But never uh, 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 display non-duality to Guru. Why? Because the function of Guru is only Guru can do. That is, the function of Guru is destruction of ego. So if we as ego go to Bhagavan and say, you and I are one, that is the that is the greatest folly of all. Only where where we cease to exist, then we will experience our oneness with Him. So long as it's there's you and I, there's no there's no, the oneness is not there. Our ignorance is still not there. So we have to surrender to Him. So the implication of that verse is. Guru is above all the three gods. He's the highest of the highest. The highest of the, that is the ultimate function of God is Guru. So there's nothing greater than Guru. So because Bhagavan is Guru, he's he's um, whiter, whiter. Yes, if we want to take him as an avatar or if you want to take him as a manifestation of Subramania or um, this god or that god or whatever, whatever be our Krishna or Rama or whoever, we can take it. There's no wrong in that. But the truth is, he is the ultimate reality, the Paramatman, that which is shining in the heart of all, from, Vish from Mahavishnu himself downwards, he's shining in the heart of all as I. In other words, he is the reality of all of us. He is the reality of Brahma. He's the reality of Shiva. He's the reality of Vishnu. He's the reality of Shiva. He's the reality of all gods. He's the reality of this world. He's the reality of us. He alone is what is real. He alone is what exists. So I hope that adequately answers that question. Shall I deal with the other question I was asked? It's not actually a question, but um, should I take that up? Uh, what what this, this person wanted to remain anonymous, they wrote, um, ego is overwhelming. I mean, quotation, okay, okay, it's okay. Next time I will e exercise more restraint and be calmer and less judgmental and talk less, uh, is what I tell myself, uh, but forget when being wronged or fear of other emotions and uh, of, of physical safety, when they hit me, then this ego rises up again is the implication. Yes, this is the nature of ego. Um, the only way to curb the rising of ego is the method, is what Bhagavan has taught us. That is, ego rises, stands and flourishes by attending to things other than itself. As Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludhanaptu, uh, Uru Patriundam, grasping form it rises. Ego, he says in the, at the end of that verse, he says it's a formless phantom. So since ego is a formless phantom, whatever forms it grasps are things other than itself. So the implication when he says grasping form, it comes into existence. That means grasping things other than itself, it comes into existence. Grasping form, it stands. 
grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. That is, forms are attention to form, they've approved, but nourishes and sustains ego. Uruvittu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. Tedinal otum piricum, if sought, it takes flight. That is, if ego, if, so long as the ego is allowing its attention going outwards to grasp other things, it is sustaining and nourishing itself. If it turns its attention back within, it subsides and disappears. So how can we keep this ego in check? Very, very simple. Keep an eye on it. Um, the, an analogy I often use is um, if a small uh, uh, bunny rabbit, uh, that, that a young rabbit, it likes to come out and play. But it knows there's lots of danger out in the world. There are wolves and foxes and all sorts of uh, creatures that may prey on it. So it likes to come out and play, but at the same time, it's very wary. If anyone's watching it, it will go and retreat back into its hole. So ego is like that. Ego loves to come out and dance and play and do all its mischief. But if we watch it, it retreats back into its source. So all we have to do to keep ego in check is to keep a watchful eye on it. In other words, we have to be self-attentive. To the extent to which we are self-attentive, to that extent, ego subsides in its source. Uh, there's also a, a story that Bhagavan used to tell. There was a, a sadhu, a very simple sadhu. He lived in a in a mandapam. That's in a in a, 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 a hallway, but uh, that is stone hallway built for for. Uh, temple deities. Maybe we can imagine one of the mandapums there are around Arunachala. That is, um, twice a year, Arunachala is taken on uh, procession uh, around the hill, Gagari Prakshana. And there are certain mandapums there where that are there for Arunachala to be kept in that, to look up the hill and then to proceed on its way. Um, so, uh, in some, some such mandapum, this sadhu was living. So, Every day he would go to a nearby town or village to beg his food, one, only once a day. So he would come back, and in the evening he would eat half the food. He would keep the rest for the morning, um, because he would only go out in the late part of the day for his begging. <clears throat> so he'd keep something for the morning. One morning when he woke up, his begging bowl was empty. So he understood, oh, oh, someone must have come and, and taken it. So he decided to be vigilant. He thought, if I stay awake, then no one will come. So he waited and he waited and he waited. He was overcome by sleep. He fell asleep and he woke up and there the bowl was empty again. Um, the next night, he decided to be more vigilant. Um, but again, he was being overcome by sleep. He was dozing off. And while he was dozing off, he heard slurp 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 he saw a dog was licking you know how dogs uh, will, will eat some uh, kanji or something they'll do eat it with their tongue like they drink water so he heard, he heard the dog uh, uh, eating uh, his food so he looked at it and once the dog ran away so next night he decided to be more vigilant so he was keeping a watchful eye he knew where the dog is coming from now um, so he was watching watching the dog came very close, very close. And then when he saw he was being watched, he stopped and he slowly started retreating. And the next night, the dog didn't wasn't so brave because he knew he was being watched. The next night, he was a little bit further away and the sadhu was watching him carefully. The next night, again, the sadhu was watching him carefully, so he stayed so further away. Eventually, he came only up to the, to the, to the gateway and he looked, he saw the sadhu was looking at him, he slipped away. 
Um, and, and eventually he stopped coming back because the Sadhu was vigilantly watching him. Bhagavan said, such is the nature of ego. If we watch this ego, it will retreat and subside back into its source. So Bhagavan has given us a very, very simple method of, uh, of, of, of keeping this ego in check. All we have to do is to watch it. That is the whole of yoga. The whole of yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha. The yoga, Patanjali says right at the beginning of, of um, Yoga Sutra, yoga is, the, is restraining or curbing the activity of the mind, stopping the activity of the mind. How to stop the activity of the mind? They do pranayama and dharana, dhyana, so many things they do. Bhagavan has given us a very simple thing. Don't worry about the mind. Don't worry about all the chitta-vrittis. For whom are the chitta-vrittis? They're only for ego. Let the chitta-vrittis take care of themselves. Just watch ego. If you watch ego, ego will subside. When ego subsides, all its chitta-vrittis will also subside along with it. That is, the chitta-vrittis, all the other thoughts, exist only for the first thought. As Bhagavan says, only when all other thoughts arise only after the first thought I, because all other thoughts are objects. The first thought I is the subject. So the other thoughts exist only in the view of the object, or in the view of the subject. So if all other thoughts appear only in the view of ego, if instead of attending to the other thoughts, if we just attend to ourselves, yeah, but they, we're not giving any room for other thoughts to arise. So we've already taken care of the other thought. And because we're watching ego, ego is retreating like that dog, going further and further away, being more and more cautious. So if you want to keep ego in check, all you need to do is to be self-vigilant, to remember yourself, to keep an eye on yourself, watch your own being, watch I am, and ego will be kept in control. Such a simple method Bhagavan has given us. That's all that is necessary. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya